3650 Physiology of Exercise Lecture, Tuesday, October 26, 2010, Anabolic Androgenic Steroids. First of all, let's talk about your articles, um, which took me forever to grade, but next go-around will be easier, I think. Um, if you do not get your article back, first of all, your grade is posted on ULEARN. Um, you have to check with your lab instructor. Um, those of you who checked, did Ryan have all of them? Did he? No. Did Meg, Megan give them? No, she didn't. Megan I guess she's. Yeah, she gave them back in lab. This is people who weren't there to pick them up. So, um, the uh, okay. So let's see. I'll email those guys and make sure we get them put in a place that y'all can pick them up. Okay, because you'll need them to to do part two. So let's talk about some common issues uh, that led to reduction of points. Um, first of all, on the citation, this is a different article, but it's the exact same kind of citation style. Common things that people mess up. Uh, it's supposed to be a little ampersand right here for and. Um, getting the title of the, the name of the journal itself either wrong or not italicizing or underlining it. You know, this is the volume, this is the issue, these are the pages. Put the year of publication in the right spot. Basically, you know, gave you an example. So if you just follow that example exactly, you'll, you'll get it correct. It's, it's uh, you know, not particularly hard to do. Um, so on the citation, just pay attention to the little nitpicky details and you'll get that part correct. Um, on the article itself, I'd say common problems were being too wordy on things that weren't the main part point of the article. Okay, so uh, for example, uh, and then the other thing was leaving out important elements. So if we look at the title of this article, we know it's got to do with uh, creatine supplementation and resistance training. So most every, most everybody did did well with the purpose. But then when we went to the next part, the methods. If we've got these things in the title, what do you want to make sure you include in your methods? Those things. And what would you want to include about creatine supplementation in your methods? That they, you had a creatine group and a placebo group. Most people did fine with that. But a lot of people stopped at that. What else would, you, would it be important to know about the creatine? Pardon? Uh, how it worked, but some details on the methods. How much it was consumed? How much was consumed? And did they consume the same amount the, the entire study? No. They did what first? Loaded for a week and then supplemented for 12 weeks, right? So those are important details. And it doesn't take, a, doesn't take but a sentence or two to get those details in there. Okay, most people hit the resistance training okay that they did a you know, planned resistance training program for 12 weeks. That's fine. If you're looking at your other methods, what are the two most, based on the title, what are the two most important things they were looking at that creatine loading or supplementation and resistance training would affect? Was it body mass, BMI, body composition? Performance. Performance. And this is the other, probably the most common thing also that people, um, is you need to be specific, okay? Because performance can mean a lot of different things. So you need to be specific. What specific performance items were they looking at? Strength, and even more specific than that, how did they measure strength performance? One rep max on what specific things? Bench press, squat jump. Okay, so, some, so be specific. What about fiber adaptations? What specifically were they looking for? Size increases or decreases. Okay, and well, what specifically? Within what fibers? Right. So they looked at specific muscle fiber types, and the main thing they were looking for was an increase in size by the, the cross-sectional area getting bigger. Okay? So you want to be specific. There's a lot of other information in there about, you know, body composition and <clears throat> weight changes and all that kind of stuff. But those, all you had to do is look at the title in most cases and you can figure out what are the most important elements of that particular research study. Okay? 
So those are probably the common things. You talk too much about things that were not the most important things, uh, and you didn't talk about enough about or didn't talk at all about the things that were the most important things. Okay? Now, with results, uh, what a lot of people did with the results is they looked at results in the research study and they started getting, you know, giving it uh, uh, in order that they gave it to you in the results section of the study. Okay? <clears throat> what would make more sense, particularly when you're limited in space like this, is to put the most important results first. So, based on this idea, what results would you put first? Performance. Okay? Talk about the most important stuff first. Okay? So, what I would suggest is in that, re in that results section, talk about how the performance... Uh, you also need to be really clear. With this research study, did the creatine supplement, supplementing group increase their one rep max bench press? Yes. yes. Did the placebo group increase their one rep max bench press? Yes. yes. So what's the big deal about this study then? The difference in what? Pre to post? Because they both improved. The difference between the two groups. Did the creatine group increase more than the placebo group? Yes. Okay. So don't lose those important details from your results. A lot of people said one rep max bench press increased, which is true, but it increased in both groups. So you got to make sure that you hit those, those important, you know, what is this study telling us that, that we didn't know before? Okay. Um, all right, so those are, those are kind of the main things. Now, next step. Uh, if you want, you, you don't have to, but you can rewrite that assignment and turn it back in and I'll regrade it and give you whatever your new grade is. Okay? I'll get there in a second. All right. Then, step two of this article assignment is to now take that from those boxes in the table and write it in a narrative form. Okay? So it will look more like... And there's a template on you uh, learn for this. But it will look more like this. Put your name on it, put the citation in that box, and then write this summary. The template does not have all of this info. It just says summary and it has this text box down here. So what you will do is you will write a narrative summary of what you've learned from this research study, starting with and include make sure you include you know, the purpose, important details of design and methods, summary of the results, uh, conclusions, and practical applications. Most of what you've already written, you can either just rewrite or, I would be careful about cut and pasting because sometimes you just cut and paste and stuff doesn't make sense when you just paste it in there. If you do cut and paste, make sure you read back through it and, and uh, edit it properly. So now what we're going to do is we're going to go from the individual pieces to a written narrative summary of the journal article. Okay? These two things are due a week from Friday. Okay? A week from Friday. You turn them in in lab. So you have... Let me give you a specific date for your calendars. Uh, could be. Is it the 5th? November 5th? Okay, Friday, November 5th during your lab period. That is both for the rewrite, if you want to do so, of 1 and turning in 2. Okay? Everybody got it? Any questions or issues with the journal article? Matthew. Yes, but then read through it and make sure, for example, that as a narrative, the sentences and the paragraphs are connected, you know, that there's some reasonable transition and it's not just these individual blocks of information like that, that it should, it should read in a, in a narrative-type fashion. Okay? Um, one more important point, if you choose to rewrite number one and turn it back in, 
uh, for me to regrade it, include the one that I made the comments on. What if you, um, threw, that one? <laughs> what if you threw it away? <laughs> 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 I just don't even know how to answer that one. <laughs> I've been doing this for 20 years, and that's the first time I've ever heard that one. I just don't even... Most people just choose to disguise that in some fashion. Or, uh, you, can, you can still rewrite it and turn it back in, and I'll take my best shot at figuring out with some... I don't know, there's got to be some penalty for that. All right. So make sure you... Assuming you haven't thrown it away... Make sure you turn in the one that I wrote uh, comments on so I can more easily uh, figure out where your improvements were. Okay? I just may not be able to easily figure out where your improvements were. Okay. Any other questions about the journal article? And I'm still getting, I'm still figuring out number the third part of this. Uh, and we'll get to that at some point. I promise not to leave it till the last day of class. Okay? Everybody good with that? All right, so let me get rid of this. Get rid of that. And let's do steroids. Yeah, we're we're one lecture behind, so I haven't done I haven't done steroids yet. So we need to do steroids. For today, I have rearranged these slides a little bit, and uh, the, the, the content is pretty much the same. It, well, it is the same. I've just rearranged it a little bit, and I have uploaded the new one. Uh, most of these slides are still on there. You just might have to flip back and forth a little bit, okay? So don't, get, don't become distressed when I put up a slide that you don't immediately see right away. All right, these drugs are properly referred to as anabolic androgenic steroids. There are, other, there are other steroid drugs that are anti-inflammatory drugs. These are anabolic androgenic steroids because they have a very specific effect on uh, uh, tissue building. Okay, And they also have some other uh, specific uh, effects as well. Essentially, there are many different derivatives, but essentially these are synthetic versions of testosterone. Okay? Now, if you'll recall back to our, our talk about muscle adaptation, there was both a load-sensitive part of this, these muscle cells and also a hormone-sensitive part of these muscle cells that stimulates that whole process of, of um, protein synthesis, and in this case, specifically muscle protein synthesis. Uh, in this case, what these drugs do is they were initially developed for people who uh, their bodies were not producing a sufficient amount. Okay, in other words, uh, you know, males is an example that may have had testicular cancer, so you know they're not producing uh, any or enough testosterone. So these drugs are available then to give their bodies a normal level of testosterone so they can function properly. Well, athletes being who and what they are. A lot of times they're already at a high level of performance and they want to seek to, uh, a strategy or something that they can use to get them to a, a different level. And so starting probably about the 1950s, uh, these drugs, these clinically used drugs, were then start, started to be seen used by athletes to try to um, supercompensate their body's levels of, of these hormones that are related to putting on more muscle. Uh, as well as some other things. All right, so they are anabolic, which that term refers to tissue building, and what they do is they stimulate protein synthesis. They stimulate these muscle cells to crank up the protein synthesis process. They are also properly referred to as androgenic because these are obviously the uh, hormones that are responsible for male secondary sex characteristics. And that's where we, one of the reasons we start to see some of the problems with steroids when people take them uh, above and beyond clinical dosages. 
All right, well here's, uh, again, here was our kind of simplified version. But basically we've got our nucleus of our muscle cell. We've got the DNA right here. And so this um, the hormone is carried through the blood, acts with a receptor on the muscle cell membrane, sets up a whole series of what are called post-receptor events that trigger the process of um, a transcription, translation, which eventually results in protein synthesis, okay? So this is part of that hormonal process that leads to increased protein synthesis in muscle. Now, uh, we can see our steroid synthesis pathways, and interestingly enough, uh, they essentially start with cholesterol over here, and we've got our mineral corticoid pathway, which leads down to aldosterone, which is one of our hormones that helps us control uh, fluid and salt balance in the body. We've got our glucocorticoid pathway, which leads down to cortisol, and this is also where the anti-inflammatory steroid drugs come in uh, to play. But then we've got the pathway that comes over here to our uh, androgen and estrogen pathway. And you can see we've got these precursors here, DHEA, androstenedione, and then finally the synthesis of testosterone. And then interestingly, how testosterone is further metabolized, um, it is either converted to dihydrotestosterone or it can be converted uh, through a chemical process to estradiol. Uh, one of the uh, adverse effects that can be seen with the use of either some of these precursors or with uh, 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 excessive amounts of uh, androgen, the, the steroid hormone itself is increasing uh, femininizing effects. You, know, you can't read this down here, but you're supposed to bulk up on testosterone, not, uh, not estrogen. Okay? So what happens in some cases is it, under the body's normal amounts, the body produces either dihydrotestosterone and small amounts of estradiol, but if you dramatically increase the amount of testosterone in this pathway, a large amount actually gets converted to estradiol, which is more of a feminizing hormone uh, with secondary sex characteristics. You guys have heard of um, uh, Andro, okay, the supplement? All right, well, one of the things that athletes started doing, particularly in the 80s, uh, was when tests started to become better about you know, catching people for using steroids is they thought, well, uh, this stuff we can purify and take it as a supplement and it's what's often referred to as a pre-hormone because we can take this as a dietary supplement and pump up the amount in the body of this androstenedione or andro, then that will help the body synthesize more testosterone. Um, and uh, a couple of things about it, one of, one of them somewhat cynical because a lot of athletes that tested positive for steroids were saying, well, I wasn't using steroids or testing positive for having too high levels of testosterone, that they were using this uh, legal over-the-counter supplement that you could buy. Okay? And we think a lot of those athletes were probably were using steroids. They were just using the andro supplement as a kind of a mask for that. But anyway, uh, once enough studies were done with enough long-term studies, people who were supplementing with androstenedione to try to increase their testosterone amounts found out there was an initial, in the first day or two, bump in their testosterone. But if they kept taking the stuff over the next couple of weeks, actually what happened is the testosterone normalized and they started producing more estradiol. So, okay. Um, all right, well, who uses anabolic steroids? Um, it, it, initial use of anabolic steroids primarily by strength and power athletes, uh, bodybuilders, people that are interested in adding more muscle mass. You know, these, these folks, the bodybuilders, are obviously looking, just to, uh, looking to add a, a lot of total mass. Um, there are other athletes that are more power-oriented athletes, power and speed athletes, that were looking to try to improve their performance. Um, interestingly, a number of endurance athletes have been caught using steroids. And in this case, it's a little bit different. They're not trying to add a lot more muscle mass, 
They're using lower doses to try to help recovery from the uh, rigors of training. Uh, this is Floyd Landis, who won the Tour de France, you know, which is a, uh, a, uh, takes place over about three weeks. They race their bikes about 2,500 miles in different stages every day uh, over about a three-week period. So there's a lot of stress and breakdown of muscle, so they tend to take the steroids more for the recovery. Uh, and he was, uh, he was caught using steroids, uh, lost, his, uh, the, you know, lost the championship or the yellow jersey, denied it, denied it, denied it, denied it for several years, took him to court, so on and so forth, came out about a month ago and admitted, yeah, he actually was doing steroids. So um, one of the shocking things, well, and also probably one of the sports that this has been really big is uh, baseball. Uh, particularly through the uh, late 80s and mostly through the 90s, we saw a huge bump and increase in number of home runs hit where 50, 60, 70 home runs was not uncommon by uh, baseball players. And now that we, this, this steroid era has seemingly passed, it's, it's actually, what do we have in major leagues this year? One guy to hit 50 home runs, yeah. I think? One person? So um, so we had, we had athletes who came out in... Uh, uh, you know, cheerfully admitted in books and, and in public that he, they did steroids. Um, we had people who testified in front of Congress that they know they did not use steroids, only to find out later that, uh, yeah, they really did uh, admit that they did. Um, uh, so anyway, it's, it's um, the interesting thing with baseball is that use of steroids was not prohibited. Okay, and so there's a lot of ethical debates, you know, for example, with um, this guy. You know, so whether or not there should be an asterisk or whether or not his home run record should actually stand. But, in fact, at the time that he hit uh, the, all of his home runs, really, steroids were, were not technically not banned in baseball. Um, you can make some arguments about their ethical use. And, in fact, it's not been proven yet whether or not he, and he's never admitted that he used steroids, but this is a picture of him in his uh, uh, mid to late 20s, when men are usually at their peak in terms of their uh, fitness. This is a picture of him at age 40, and typically, typically without having some pharmaceutical help, um, men don't acquire this much muscle mass uh, in their 40s. Okay, so the, the circumstantial evidence is pretty heavy against him, but I, I will say, I will have to temper this by saying he, he's never admitted and it's never been proven that he used steroids. But it actually was not, it was, certainly was not illegal. It was not banned by baseball at the time. Okay, it is now. Um, there can be some argument about its ethical use and also about the fact that these are prescription drugs and are typically only given to people for legitimate clinical purposes. And I don't think hitting 75 home runs is a legitimate clinical purpose, but all right. Now, one of the disturbing things, this is a, this is a, um, a survey by the National Institute for Drug Abuse. Okay, this is percentage of those who ever used steroids. This is not a real high percentage, 1% or 2%, but here's the disturbing, this is through the 90s. Here's the disturbing thing. In purple is 8th grade, in, in light purple is 10th grade, and in black is 12th grade. Okay, so the use of these types of drugs is being pushed further and further down in terms of age because everybody wants to be a successful athlete. Interestingly, um, uh, in this survey of the high school uh, subjects that were surveyed, a third of those who admitted using steroids were not actually even athletes on a high school team. Okay? So why were they using steroids? Pardon? Could be to improve their performance enough to get on the football team or whatever. It's what I call the cosmetic athlete. All right? The person who takes these drugs because they want to have a certain appearance and they train and whatever to, to uh, have a certain appearance. Okay. All right. Well, how are these steroids used? First of all, there are oral forms, okay, which you take as pills. 
There are also injectable forms that you inject IM or intramuscularly. You inject it right into the muscle. Um, athletes also use these in, in a fashion that's called stacking, in, in that they use multiple forms of the drugs. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to find combinations of these drugs that work to give them the physiological benefits that they're seeking while avoiding the adverse effects that tend to come along with these drugs. And they work slightly differently for different people under different circumstances. So they'll take these drugs uh, in combination to try to find the best combination of positive benefit and the least amount of adverse effects. Uh, the reason the adverse effects are so problematic is because there are legitimate clinical dosages for these drugs, but athletes in general will take these in somewhere between 10 to 100 times higher, the, higher than the legitimate clinical dose. Right? So that's where we start to get into the problem of, of abuse. They'll also use these drugs in a pattern that's called cycling, where during a certain portion of their training they'll start using uh, in smaller doses and build their dosage so that their body adapts to it more slowly and uh, is in conjunction with an increasing period of training and then they will start to cycle off the drug and slowly reducing their their use um, so they uh, as they're tapering their training okay so there's different cycles and different times people don't just take these drugs and take them typically the same amount consistently all year long now because there's, and it depends on the kind of sport or activity, but a lot of sports and, and uh, uh, competitive sports have drug testing. Um, so athletes do what's called masking. They will take other drugs that will tend to hide the use of these steroids. Diuretics are a good example because most of the tests are urine tests. So they'll take diuretics to increase their urine output and try to remove the traces or lower the traces to low enough that they can't be detected. So anti-doping agencies then now have to test not only for the drugs, but they also have to test for the masking agents as well. So that's why you get these big long lists of banned substances by uh, WADA and USADA, etc. All right, so these are some of the common oral steroids, um, Dianabol, Winstrol or Stenozolol, uh, some of the injectables over here, Decadurabolin, Durabolin. Uh, this one's always interested me down here. Equipoise, what does the prefix equi refer to? Horses. Horses. Yeah, so in some cases when people can't get a hold of uh, um, uh, drugs made for humans, they'll get a hold of drugs from veterinarians uh, and use those. Um, yeah, and I'm gonna, uh, this is, uh, one of the new slides I've got on here will show you the dis degree of desperation some people will go to. Um, now, this is one of these areas you gotta be, you gotta understand how science works and you sort of get a feel for, for uh, what's happened over the 70s and 80s and 90s. Um, definitive research on steroids is really hard to do, okay? Because uh, if you look at studies uh, where they have done controlled studies, if you wanted to figure out how steroids, uh, if steroids make you sprint 100 meters faster, and I think we did this the first day of class, you would take a group of sprinters, you would do their pretest, 100 meter sprint. Then you divide them into a steroid group and a non-steroid, a placebo group. Okay. Now, by the laws of how we can treat human subjects, you can only give a drug to these subjects that's equivalent to the maximum clinical dose that would be used in, in a clinical type of environment. And what happens is when you do that, when you give the clinical or therapeutic dose, what happens is in these research studies, there's not enough of a difference to be able to tell definitively if it improves performance. So early on, a lot of the message from sports medicine and physicians and the exercise science world was that uh, there's no proof, there's no scientific proof that these drugs work. On the other hand, the athletes are out there using them and they know it works, okay? So there was kind of a mixed message there for a while. The other reason is uh, there are some psychological effects, okay, that by increasing the amount of testosterone or synthetic testosterone in the body, it increases aggression, uh, you know, willingness to train hard, and so it's hard to tell is it 
Is it psychological, people just want to train harder, or is it actually physiological? Is it actually doing something to, to increase the amount of muscle um, separate from the, the psychological effects? So it's difficult to do. All right, so here's a study that looked at a therapeutic dose where they did, um, seven, uh, they did 10 different measurements of strength, um, and they looked at body composition. And uh, in this particular study, they gave them either testosterone, uh, nandrolone, or a placebo. And what happened in, in um, there's no real difference in body composition uh, in these athletes over the training period. Um, there was no difference in seven out of the 10 measurements of strength. And the other three measurements of strength, the results were really inconsistent. And so these um, authors concluded no significant androgenic anabolic steroid-induced changes. Okay? But again, the problem is this was a uh, therapeutic dose of either testosterone or nandrolone. Or nandrolone. All right. So how do you attack this then if you want to find out if this stuff works? You have to go to a, a lesser powerful research design and you do studies like this one where you let the subjects select themselves into a group. Okay? So as a researcher, you can't give a person greater than a therapeutic dose of steroids, but the person can choose to do that on their own. Okay? And so basically what they did is they, in this particular study, um, they recruited some uh, national class competitive lifters, and the ones who were probably already or interested in taking steroids said, I'll be in the steroid group and I'll, ad I'll administer myself steroids. And the other group said, I don't want to take steroids, so I'll be in the control group. So there's some issues or some problems in, in letting people select what group they're going to be in. But nonetheless, that's how you got to do these. So they self-administered steroids. And this was um, um, isometric force. And this was a squat. Okay, So this was doing their uh, one rep max squat. And so here was 30 weeks of training. Okay, we've got the steroid group in the solid line, and we've got the placebo group in the dashed line right here. So you can see early on, you know, it takes a little while for the effects to, to be seen, but as you get through 12, 18, 24 weeks of training, you can see there's a significant difference in the increase in, in the change in squat. So there was a significant improvement in uh, the amount of weight that the people taking steroids could, could lift. Then interestingly, if you look right here at 24 weeks, this is where they took the drugs and then they stopped taking them at 24 weeks. Even though they stopped taking the drugs at 24 weeks, what happened with their squat? It still kept going up. And in fact, after another three weeks, it was still at the level that it was when uh, they stopped using the drugs. So it takes a while for these to move out of the system and for the positive effects to, to wash out. That's why for years, athletes, if they knew a competition was coming up, they could cycle on the drugs and then stop using the drugs several weeks beforehand. The amount of drug in their system was low enough they wouldn't get caught, but their performance was still elevated. Okay? Um, so now what they have to do is random year-round testing. Anytime, I mean, basically, if you're a competitive athlete on certain national teams, Olympic teams, etc., you have to make yourself available for drug testing within 48 hours of when you're contacted. You literally, and you sign up for this, and being on one of these teams, you sign up for, uh, you have to let USADA know where you are, and you let, have to let them know a contact number so that they can get in touch with you and uh, make yourself available for testing. And the, the, uh, the folks who do the drug testing literally will show up at your front door with urine collection cups. Okay, So uh, that's, that's one of the only ways to get around this problem of, of knowing when to stop in advance so that you can't be caught. Uh, and this is isometric force. You don't see quite the same effect, uh, the same degree of effect, but it's still uh, uh, an increase in for those taking steroids. All right? So not as strong of a research design but clearly shows a significant benefit in gain of strength for people who were taking steroids. Okay, um, so what does the research tell us? 
first of all, clearly increases protein synthesis. All right, through that pathway that we talked about, it's a, the same pathway we talked about with muscle adaptation, we get an increase in uh, protein synthesis. It also decreases the action of the catabolic hormones like cortisol. Okay? So not only does it increase the anabolic effect, it decreases the catabolic effect so we stay in that anabolic state longer uh, and it's more effective. Uh, we see myosin ATPase activity increase. As you might expect, since this is more strength and power oriented, we see a decrease in capillary density and mitochondrial density. Okay? The anaerobic elements of the muscle increase, the aerobic elements of the muscle decrease. Now, one of the, one of the things that is a uh, potentially adverse effect is in heart muscle, there's a disruption of mitochondria in heart muscle and also myocardial hypertrophy that is of the, we talked about this some last time, this would be more of the pathological type of myocardial hypertrophy. So this is, these are physiological effects that are, that are not good for you. Okay. Um, this is a little bit data, but it was probably one of the uh, early, really big steroid stories. Um, uh, Sprinter, he was, he was actually from Jamaica, Trinidad, can't remember. Uh, but he had Canadian citizenship, so he uh, actually ran in the Olympics for Canada. Uh, in 1987, he won the World Cup, 100 meters, uh, and set a world record. He went to the Seoul Olympics in 1988, uh, won the 100 meters by, by Usain Bolt type links, uh, and set another world record in the uh, 100 meter finals. This was 1988 and he ran 9.79, which was a time that was just run a couple of years ago. Okay. Uh, they did the drug testing, he got caught using steroids, um, they took his gold medal away. He was uh, suspended from international competition for two years. Um, it was serious enough that the, that, uh, the Canadian government did a big uh, 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 study of track and field, of the Canadian track and field team, where, where it was admitted that some systematic drug use uh, was in place in preparation for the uh, 88 Olympics. So anyway, he was, he was out, for, out for two years. And supposedly was training clean uh, for these two years, and he came back to competition in 1991. Uh, After coming back to competition, the fastest he could get down to was 10.16, which ranked him 22nd in the world. Okay, so this was after uh, he had run uh, uh, 9.79, world record holder, gold medal, top of the world for a couple of years. Uh, He wasn't even in the top 20. So another couple of years go by, and in an inner, in a indoor meet, he runs 5.65 for 50 meters, which was only uh, four one-hundredths off of his own world record. So he's getting back in great shape, right? Except he tested positive again for steroids, and uh, this time was banned for life from uh, competition. This case study illustrates a couple of issues. One is... The guy clearly was a world-class sprinter, okay? uh, but he wasn't a world record holder, gold medal winner without steroids. So he systematically used steroids that got him to that level, but when he went off of them, he found he couldn't get back to that level again, and even knowing that he could potentially be banned for life, he went back on steroids and, uh, and unfortunately for him, got caught again. So there are some real... There are not only uh, probably some physiological dependence, there's also some real psychological dependence, I think, uh, uh, on the part of these athletes that either legitimately can't get to levels uh, without this help, uh, and also once they get there, they can't get back to that level. Um, All right, so what are some of these adverse effects? I, I, I like this next series of slides comes from the Gatorade Sports Science Institute. And I, I like them because the tendency is to say steroids will kill you. Steroids will cause cancer. Okay? And, and in reality, there are adverse effects. There are some relatively common adverse effects 
that are probably not really severe. Um, and the athletes who use steroids under supervision, it's actually, you know, I'm not, don't mistake me, I'm not endorsing this by any means, but the athletes who use steroids under supervision, it's probably relatively, relatively safe because they're being given appropriate dosages and they're being monitored. It's the athletes who buy this stuff in the, you know, in the locker rooms at gyms and are administering it to themselves is the ones you really worry about. But anyway, uh, there are some life-threatening that are fairly severe, life-threatening, but these are relatively infrequent. They are typically seen in people who are heavy abusers of steroids. And they can include uh, uh, liver tumors, blood-filled uh, blood cysts, um, uh, bile duct blockage, uh, and you know, and, and uh, basically tumors in the livers, liver cancer can also cause kidney tumors associated with prostate cancer and acute psychosis. This idea of this roid rage, the the um, kind of a psychotic episodes of aggression. Now there are less severe effects uh, that tend to be more common. Uh, if women are taking steroids during pregnancy, it can actually cause uh, inhibited development if their child is a female because it's now being exposed to more of the male androgen hormone. It can actually cause uh, masculinizing effects in the female uh, child. Um, it can actually result in what we see here, which is extreme virilization where you get uh, uh, secondary sex characteristics, very uh, heavy body hair um, as an example, um, premature cessation of bone growth. Those epiphyseal plates that are on the end of the long bones that help the bones grow in length, they can prematurely close so people uh, lose the, their height growth. Okay. Um, now this, this gynecomastia, this is one this is a reflection probably of the, the production of excess estradiol from having too much testosterone, and it's actually the growth of feminine-like breasts in, in males. Uh, there are bodybuilders that will actually go to plastic surgeons and have breast reduction surgery so that they can then uh, continue their bodybuilding careers. Um, in women, disruption, or, uh, including complete cessation of uh, the menstrual cycle, uh, atrophy of breast and uterus, uh, again, masculine type secondary sex characteristics like uh, thinning of the hair on the head, growth of facial hair, which is uh, uh, in many cases irreversible, uh, clitoral enlargement, deepening of the voice, so very much uh, masculine uh, secondary sex characteristics. In males, because you are getting, the body is seeing this enhanced level of synthetic testosterone, what are the testes going to do in terms of production of your normal endogenous testosterone? It's going to go down. And as a result, what, the, what uh, people see is an um, uh, atrophy of the testicles and sterility. This is actually one of the ironic things I find about use of steroids because a lot of guys use them to put on muscle and get this ultimate, you know, male masculine look and in fact their testicles are shrunken. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, now the sterility is usually uh, reversible when people go off the steroids and they get washed out of their system and they start, their testes start producing uh, 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 their own testosterone again. Usually the uh, sterility uh, uh, resolves itself. But then also gynecomastia or growth of feminine like breast tissue uh, in males. Okay, you do see evidence of some uh, liver damage or dysfunction. So those, those liver enzymes that they check to make sure the liver is working okay are usually elevated. Uh, a potential uh, bad long-term effect is a lowering of HDL cholesterol, which makes these folks more susceptible to the development of coronary artery disease and heart disease over time. Uh, and then aggressive behavior, mood swings, other psychological uh, issues, and also uh, 
can be seen with, uh, can see fairly severe acne. Okay, so here's, here's sort of the, the, the dependence and the, and the um, this is a case study that was published in Medicine and Science and Sports and Exercise a few years ago. Uh, this is a, in a, a case study of a 20-year-old male bodybuilder. He comes to his primary care physician to seek treatment for uh, thigh pain. And in the initial visit, admitted to injecting steroids in his thigh. So they started him on antibiotics, and two weeks later came back in and uh, drained 200 cc's of pus uh, that was developing in an abscess in his thigh. Uh, sent him home, still working on the antibiotics. Uh, at uh, six weeks later, uh, took himself to the ER because of severe thigh pain. And at the emergency room, they discovered uh, a large abscess in his right thigh that needed to be abscessed uh, or incised and drained. And there was necrosis, which is tissue death, uh, chronic uh, and acute inflammation. And when they cultured it, they found streptococcus, staphylococcus, and peptostreptococcus. Uh, he didn't admit to sharing needles, but he admitted to injecting steroids out of the same vial uh, as, as uh, some of his uh, companion bodybuilders. And so obviously he, he, it was, in, it was uh, infected and he picked it up and from repeated injections in his thigh, he got um, uh, a pretty severe infection. What was interesting to me about this case study and the reason I, I put it in here was his response when the, the uh, physicians were trying to counsel him about the steroid use. Here was, here was the quote. Multiple healthcare professionals discussed the dangers of injecting steroids but the patient felt that healthcare professionals were ill-informed, had poor information about steroid use and its side effects, and did not understand the culture of bodybuilding. He repeatedly stated that the benefit of physical changes induced by steroids far outweighed the risk or danger of steroid use. Wow. This was a guy who had to go to the hospital to have a large abscess cut open in his thigh. So that kind of illustrates some of the mindset that can get associated with this. Okay. Um, a lot of times one of the things you see also with use of steroids is uh, human growth hormone. Um, the anabolic androgenic steroids typically are targeted towards muscle tissue and synthesis of, of muscle protein. Um, human growth hormone typically is, uh, also increases protein synthesis but tends to be more uh, oriented towards the connective tissue. And this is an issue because muscle tissue can adapt faster than the connective tissue. And you can wind up with a muscle that can produce enough force that can then either uh, damage the tendons or the underlying bone. So a lot of times these athletes will include human growth hormone uh, to try to stimulate the, the uh, parallel adaptations in uh, connective tissue. Problem is, chronic use of human growth hormone can result in uh, uh, certain muscle diseases, uh, diabetes, and uh, uh, is associated with a shortened lifespan. Okay. Questions? Comments? Question, comments. So the reason why the males when they steroids they develop breasts is because uh, the excess of testosterone can be changed into estrogen? Correct. It's this pathway right here. You know, basically what happens, and, and, I, and, I, and I didn't necessarily put this up for a, something that would be on a quiz or an exam, although it might not be a bad idea, um, is you get this pathway here where testosterone is being synthesized but then how it is uh, further uh, metabolized from there, one of the major routes is, is estradiol. So, and if you get an excess amount of testosterone or synthetic testosterone, you're going to be pushing more this way and more this way, and you're literally exposing the body to higher levels of estradiol and estrogen. So it only happens when there's an excess amount? Well, no, not only. I mean, you, you, you do, I mean, males have, just like females have, you can draw a blood sample and females have some testosterone 
You can draw a blood sample from males and you'll have some estradiol, but it's not very high. Uh, so you're pretty much saying just a, it's, it's going to happen anyway, but when you keep doing it, uh, do more and more and more, it's going to grow both uh, larger. Exactly. Yep. What would the effect of taking an estrogen blocker do? Well, the, the idea with that, and that's what you know, these uh, folks will do, is they will try to, to block this part over here so that this stays elevated and it would be um, uh, metabolized mostly this way. So there's, there's all kinds of strategies, and an estrogen blocker is a strategy to try to prevent the adverse effects that are associated with the estradiol formation. So that's essentially trying to block this over here and trying to force then if... If you can't run this chemical reaction, then the metabolism of testosterone has got to go in this direction. Okay? So it's basically trying to um, block those adverse effects like gynecomastia by attempting to block the formation of the estradiol and the estrogen. Okay? What exactly about human growth hormone leads to uh, a diabetic? Um, you know, I'm not sure exactly, but I, I think what it does is it helps increase insulin resistance, that it does something with the muscle tissue. I mean, it, it primarily affects the protein synthesis and connective tissue, but it also affects muscle. And I think what it does is it increases insulin resistance. So, and it's not something that it's going to happen uh, for somebody who uses human growth hormone for short periods, but for long periods of time, if that insulin resistance increases, um, it, in effect, mimics diabetes long enough to where you can actually cause diabetes. Because what happens is, if you've got a normally functioning pancreas, if um, insulin goes up, and that's supposed to result in um, glucose uptake, and then, in, and then insulin will go, glucose will go down and insulin will go down, if glucose stays elevated because of the insulin resistance, that signal goes back to the pancreas and tells the pancreas to secrete even more insulin. So you get hyperinsulinemic. Um, and when that happens over long periods of time, the initial response of the pancreas is for the cells that produce the insulin is for them to hypertrophy. But then after some period of time, they actually get to the point where they, for lack of a better word, they, they kind of wear out. And then they're not capable of producing a sufficient amount of insulin. And so that's, it's sort of the same scenario that somebody with type 2 diabetes if they stay hyperinsulinemic for long periods of time, it eventually turns into type 1 diabetes because their pancreas starts to lose the ability to produce enough insulin. And I, I think that's what happens is it provokes an uh, um, uh, insulin resistance and a glucose intolerance with the muscle. So, Okay, others? Good questions. How are we doing on time? Oh, you guys get a bonus. You're, you're done. You're done for today. We'll do cardiovascular. We'll start cardiovascular system on Thursday.